I jumped and I landed fine. I took my second step and then I fell. I remember holding myself for like a microsecond on some sort of rock or feature or whatever it was that maybe stopped my momentum. I think it was our most honest moment because the decisions that we made had consequences. I'm Rebecca Huntington, and you're listening to The Fine Line, real stories of adventure, risk, and rescue in the backcountry of Jackson Hole, Wyoming. This podcast is produced by Backcountry Zero, a project of Teton County Search and Rescue. On a Sunday in late June in Grand Teton National Park, rescue rangers started fielding multiple calls. The first came at 5.55 p.m. An exhausted hiker was stuck on a steep snowy slope in Upper Granite Canyon. He didn't have an ice axe and was wearing only light hiking shoes. Just 35 minutes later, another call came in. A 27-year-old climber was seriously injured on Disappointment Peak at more than 11,000 feet of elevation. Park rangers called in two helicopters. They also called Teton County Search and Rescue to help with yet another call for missing boaters following an accident on the Gravon River. In this episode, we talk with climber Fia Lazarte and Jenny Lake Climbing Rescue Ranger Nick Armitage about the longest and most challenging rescue that very busy day. My name is Fio Lazarte, and at the time of the rescue, I was 27. My name is Nick Armitage. I'm a climbing ranger at Jenny Lake in Grand Teton National Park. The night before, I got a text message from my partner saying, training day in the mountains, are you in or are you out? And I said, okay, I'm in. What do I need to bring? And he said, well, training day, ice axe, gloves, there's a bunch of snow out there. I borrowed crampons and an ice axe and a helmet. I had glissaded before and used an ice axe to sell for us before in a different peak in the Salt River Range, and it was successful. It was not a problem. I had practiced somewhat at, at snoking, but never like super comfortable. Let me just throw myself off a mountain in the Grand Teton National Park. It was a text message plan, never with a exact destination. We were going to meet at 7 in the morning. I was going to get picked up by him, and we were going to go. It wasn't never really clear exactly where we were going. So I never told my roommates where I was going. Either I told them that I was going on a hike in the park because that's what I thought. My climbing partner had all his climbing gear in a bin in the back of his truck, and we made it to the trailhead at Lupine Meadows. At that point, I had been climbing a lot. I had been doing some climbing trips, a lot of track climbing, and it was just what I was doing. I was feeling super strong and fun about it. Made it there, and we grabbed the book, and we made a plan in the parking lot. And we were going to climb up the east ridge of the appointment peak is like a five six five seven climb very easy in my ability level we started climbing i did the pitches no problem climbing fast no problems at all and at some point the rope got stuck in our last pitch and we lost a bunch of time it was really windy that day we barely could hear each other and we made it to the top of the climb i never asked which way we're gonna come down I thought that we were going to make it to the top of the climb and we're going to rappel down because it was super easy to approach. There's the trail right there. It was going to be safe and easy and fun. And then um, my climbing partner said, well, we made it to the top of the climb, but we have to make it to the top of the peak, right? 
at that point, it was kind of like almost three or four o'clock. I can't even remember exactly. And I was like, I don't really want to make it to the top of the peak. Do we really have to? And I was kind of tired. I mean, I was just not really into making it exactly to the top of the peak and touching the landmark and being like, okay, let's turn around. And But he wanted to do that. And I said, okay. So we scrambled. Um, at that point, it was my third time up disappointment peak. I have done it before in the summer. And then it was time to glissade or come down the snowfields. And the snowfields at the top of disappointment peak are not that steep, are pretty mellow. So I slid on my bum and I had the ice axe on my side and I was okay. Before all of this, as we were getting ready to climb, my climbing partner says, okay, let's self-arrest. And, this, and we're practicing, quote, practicing on the side or like a tiny mini slope on the side of Amphitheater Lake. I mean, the steepness of that is almost non, non-existent where I couldn't really count on the steepness for me to turn around and self-arrest properly. I had to like throw myself in there and not really fall, turn around and be like, okay, I'm self-arresting, obviously, because I'm not going far. I'm not going anywhere because I wasn't steep enough. So mistake right there too, right? Anyway, so we practiced and then we climbed. I felt really good. I remember him being making a comment being like, Fio, you can't climb any faster than your belayer because I was just feeling good. I mean, I, I felt great. And then it was time to descend. And so the first um, snowfields on this appointment peak were pretty low angle, pretty easy to do. And then facing down east towards the lake, uh, we went right into the area known as the lake ledges. And to get there, I had to down climb. There were a few moats in between the snowfields and the rock. Uh, I mean, it was June 29th. I saw a tree, um, and a tree had a bunch of webbing, just anchors. People have clearly used this tree before to rappel. I asked my climbing partner, do we need to use this tree? Look, there's an anchor right there. And he said, no, we don't need it. And I asked, do we need to put my crampons on? And he said, no. You don't need them. We're just going to jump from the little ledge where I was on the rock towards the snow. I was like getting nervous because I could tell it was steep. I could tell that there the lake was pretty far away. It wasn't that close. He was um, making steps for me. I had my ice axe in my hand. I was wearing trail runners and I jumped and I landed fine. I took my second step and then... I fell and I immediately turned around to self-arrest. I was, I was holding my Isaac incorrectly. I mean, it happened so fast. And instead of holding it from the head and the stem, I was holding it, both hands from the stem. I bounced back and I started falling. And at some point, I don't even know where exactly, I remember holding myself for like a microsecond on some sort of rock or feature or whatever it was that maybe stopped my momentum and I ended up landing in a moat. As I was falling, I thought that I was going to die because it it happened so fast and I immediately couldn't get up. And I started screaming my partner's name and he couldn't see me. 
because I had fallen quite a distance, I guess, and it was also so steep. He got to me. He was really nervous. He was shaking. I don't know if it's the adrenaline from you fall. You were like, I can't can get up. I think I can get up. And I tried to get up, couldn't do that. And he called 911. I don't know if this happens in every rescue, but there is like a, this very humbling moment between me and my climbing partner. He was crying, apologizing, because he felt he was being not very aware of what I had kind of said, but not really outspoken that clearly of like, I don't really feel comfortable with with the snow and self-arresting and the ice axe. I think it was our most honest moment because the decisions that we made had consequences and he couldn't see me for a while after I fell, so he probably was pretty scared. He had no idea until he got to me. I was crying because I was in a lot of pain. <laughs> he had forgotten his headlamp, so he found mine and we saw the helicopter kind of flying around, flying around. And he was using the headlamp to kind of flash to the helicopter. I put on all the layers that I had and he was trying to keep me warm. I was sitting on his lap. My neck was hurting so bad and my, what I thought it were my hips. <laughs> and then I saw Nick and I broke into tears. I felt horrible that I was risking somebody else's life to come to my rescue. I felt really silly and dumb for making a mistake and not really speaking up, which I feel was my biggest mistake. And that was that. It was like my hero came from the snowfield below me. Dun, da, da, da. It was a pretty busy day in the park. We had uh, a few things on the river, a couple other rescues, and we were, we were kind of gathering the, the climbing ranger crew and other resources around to deal with a rescue that was occurring down in uh, Granite Canyon just outside of the ski resort. Uh, I believe that individual had taken the tram up and walked out there. And a lot of snow that time of year. A lot of the time the visitors aren't aware of that. Fio obviously knew what she was doing with that. They were going out there for a mountaineering adventure and were planning on traveling on the snow. It just depends on the elevation, but you'll have what's called isothermal snow and you're just, you're breaking all the way through. That in itself is quite a hazard. And I was kind of on the standby crew for that one. And then this call came in and it was on the later side. Uh, as Fio had mentioned, it was already kind of getting on. So we had ordered both of our, the Teton Interagency helicopters to the rescue cache, which that in itself is a little bit of an unusual situation when we feel like we need both of them. And just additional staff to staff landing them both and taking care of all of the, the logistics that go along with that. I was put on Helicopter 25 Hotel X-Ray with Drew Hardesty, and we went to recon the scene as more rangers were kind of gathering at the rescue cache there in Lincoln Meadows. We flew over the scene, and uh, we, we noticed a headlamp flashing, and um, it was it was getting a little late. We, we can fly until a half hour after the sun sets, and so we still had a little bit of time left, but probably barely if we were going to uh, do what's called short haul rescue or human external load um, with the helicopter, which is certainly the fastest, most efficient way. And um, in a situation with a, a patient with the reported injuries that Fio had, that would have been the ideal situation and it would have involved quite a quite a few less people and that kind of thing and so we hovered over the site and confirmed that you know it wasn't a particularly technical area but enough that uh, a short haul would have been great however the same winds that Theo had been experiencing all day were 
kind of peeling over the top of uh, Disappointment Peak and causing some really unstable downdrafts and the, the pilot was certainly not comfortable with hovering in that location and doing the um, the short haul, as it's known. Uh, so we had scouted for other options. We looked for even a landing z- zone that would have been down by Amphitheater Lake and we're going to climb up to the accident site. And in this case, the winds were just so squirrely because it was kind of being blocked by Disappointment Peak. They were wrapping around and we couldn't land down there at, at a little bit more of a known landing zone. So we ended up landing up on Disappointment Peak Plateau. The pilot seemed comfortable with that. It was windy, but it was cleaner air where we had landed. And um, we got out there, began hiking, climbing down to the scene. The next load, Ryan Schuster, GR Fletcher came in and Ryan Schuster was running the operation as far as the on-scene operation and I was tasked with patient care. The first two of us were trying to just get to the scene, get a quick size up and see just how bad the situation was, what kind of condition Fio was in and, and if there was any immediate life-threatening issues. And in this case, probably hypothermia was the most immediate life-threatening issue. It was, it was quite cold. And we had scouted from the air and then coming down from above, it's kind of tough to know exactly where that person was. Um, landmarking and everything changes in the Tetons with different snow loads. So we ended up um, climbing kind of around intentionally so we didn't drop rocks or knock snow or anything down on top of her. Um, and I came up from the bottom because I had kind of come around a little buttress. And yeah, I remember scrambling right up into the to the moat and seeing Theo sitting on her partner and I thought that was actually really cool that he had sacrificed himself as a, essentially the, the thermorest underneath her uh, to keep her warm and away from the wet cold rock and snow that she was sitting on and moats are terrible places many people die in moats just because of exposure there's often running water and mm-hmm. obviously that water has just melted People think of June 29th as a pretty nice time of year, but a moat in the Tetons is a very cold, wet place. And Drew arrived essentially right as I did, uh, started looking at the scene from more of a technical standpoint as far as what we were going to need to do to start moving her. It seemed at this point, as things were kind of darkening, we knew additional rangers had been dropped off above, and they were talking about bringing some more rangers in from the valley. And at the time, her, her partner was actually in a pretty tough condition too, because he had just been sitting there and wasn't moving because if he moved it, it caused pain to um to feel and uh so he, he his legs had gone numb and he was in in at least mild hypothermia you're listening to the fine line a podcast produced by backcountry zero a project of teton county search and rescue you can support backcountry zero a community vision to reduce fatalities in the tetons by simply sharing this podcast with friends and family We've got some really amazing medical directors, and they're very proactive, and they see that um, this whole spinal immobilization thing these days can really cause more problems than it does. Um, it does more harm than good in some cases because we spend all of this time trying to prevent an injury that might not occur or prevent further injury that may not even be a threat. We sort of went through the process of checking if Fio had any spinal damage, and we have these sort of elimination points that if if you clear that, these criteria, then we can move you a little bit more freely and that allows us to move faster and less technical. We don't have to have this immobilization and somebody in a litter and backboard and all that. Unfortunately, Fio didn't exactly pass that criteria. She had point tenderness, as we call it, on her cervical spine and I believe somewhere else on her back. Um, I don't recall anymore, but I kind of had this moment of, oh, yep, here we go. 
because that means we're, we're going to have a, an immobile patient potentially that if she did have the possibility of a spinal fracture, then we have to treat her very differently. And then also in this case, um, she mentioned pelvic pain, and that's another criteria that changes the way we carry a patient and transport that patient. And she, she had severe pain in the pelvis. Initially, there was splinting the leg in the moat, and we used a vacuum mattress on her inside the moat, which is a device that allows us to move her well anyway, without being able to rule out any spinal injury. That's also the best tool to move her around because it can work as a seat or a backboard or a, uh, a carrying platform. Then it has handles. A lot of ski resorts are using them now. They're really quite good. They give warmth and insulation too, and they immobilize everything. The first thing I remember as soon as I saw Nick was getting an IV. Oh yeah, that was right. the first thing that happened. I remember like some sort of like sleeping bag looking yeah. um, device, and I remember some sort of like they were like huge hand warmers. Yeah, that right. were put inside the bag, and then I remember everybody else just digging on the snowfield next to me, like a platform to put the litter. And I remember Nick telling me it was going to be time to move me. And I was like, I'm not going to fall, right? <laughs> because I was just like, done falling. Yeah, and we lifted you out of the moat. We did some quick immobilization, mm -hmm. allowing us to get you up and out. Um, you guys were in a pretty tight spot in there. Get you out, get you off of your partner so he could sort of start thriving move. a little more. And so we didn't have two patients, uh, obviously, in the, in this situation. And um, got you onto this big platform. So as these other rangers were arriving on scene, everyone's digging out the platform and a lot is happening. And, and we had a big platform to work with. At that point, it was pretty much getting dark. It was dark. Um, it was dark. Yeah. yeah. Obviously, all the other rangers, I remember Drew Hardesty and GR Fletcher specifically, were setting up anchors to start our snow lowering and they had a rope ready. I remember that. We were assessing how firm the snow was, the steepness and that sort of thing to kind of decide what's going to be the most efficient uh, system. We can go anywhere from two ropes and really big anchors, um, large snow anchors, or in this case we utilized a system called the Teton Ice Axe Belay, which is a really fast, very efficient way of moving many, many pitches down. And it's specific to sort of lower angle, but if we still have some consequences and need to control that motion. Fio and I were becoming a team, had a long night ahead of us. Um, the rest of the team was working on on their steps and making sure everything was happening. Um, and, uh, you know, Ryan Schuster, who was running the operation at the time, he was contacting the other groups to who were hiking up and they were getting closer to Surprise Lake. And we were kind of talking about where we we're going to meet and how we we're going to repackage. They brought more warm stuff. And then, uh, yeah, we got some pain meds on board. I recall her saying immediately that she was starting to feel a little bit better. I think uh, uh, something worth pointing out, though, is when we were moving you, uh, the amount of pain it had caused definitely gave me more pause of that we were potentially or probably at the time, my assessment was we were probably dealing with um, some sort of a pelvis fracture as well as a spinal fracture. And so that was what also caused this really long process of, of um, needing a lot of people to, to get her out. So when Nick first arrived to the scene, um, and I was obviously feeling very vulnerable and very embarrassed, I was like asking him, I was like, do you, do you have a family? Like I'm risking your life right now. Um, and I'm so sorry for that. And he was like, no, it's my job. And I was like, no. And 
um, I asked him and he said, I have a little baby girl and her name is Lexi. And um, throughout the rescue, when I will be like fading out, either because I was a tired or whatever, multiple things, pain or the pain medications were kicking in. Uh, Nick will be like, what's my daughter's name? Lexi. Okay. Okay. You're okay, Theo. You're okay. I was spending a lot of my time uh, night and day with my new daughter. So um, it was one of the first things that occurred to me when you asked me about me or if I had a family. I was like, well, yeah, I do. And uh, so that was fun talking about my daughter a little bit when we had a moment or two. And and it was easy for me to kind of check on your level of consciousness to just ask you, because at one point you had forgotten Lexi's name and you were like pretty out of it. Um, whether again, that was whether that was the pain or the pain medication. Um, and we, we try to find that balance doing it the old fashioned way that we didn't have the short haul. And we were going to do this full manpower carry out starting at, I think the elevation was, was probably around 11,000 feet. We had a long ways to go and it's a bumpy ride. And we had a lot of challenges on that getting down all the firm snow, which worked quite well with the technical rope lowering. And then once we got to amphitheater Lake, it kind of became more of um, a dog sled scene, <laughs> us being the dogs <laughs> And that, you know, it's just so labor intensive and you get through all these different snow um, conditions. Some are really thick and heavy and you're dragging, a, you know, a couple hundred pounds of snow that's sticking to the litter and stuff like that. So when we met the other group, which I think was just down at Surprise Lake, it always amazes me how quickly the, the reinforcements show up. It was great to see those guys. And and so you get into this, this fine line between uh, lowering and dragging. Uh, and it changes really quickly that time of year where you're like pulling someone downhill and then you've got a little uphill and then you're pulling them and then it gets too steep and you have to hook up a quick anchor or go with the Teton ice axe belay or something like that and then lower a little bit. And then we met another group coming up with the wheeled litter, which is this uh, really useful, what all, often seems like a sort of a medieval torture device when you see it. It's this very loud rickety thing, but it's got a mountain bike wheel mounted, mounted under it and has a brake attached to it and allows you to control descent on a trail. And uh, when we met the the rest of the rangers and group coming up, put Theo in that and began the wheel out. That's a whole different ball game there that we're, that's just hard labor uh, with people kind of rotating out. We were crossing large snowbanks and lifting Theo up and over snowbanks and full team effort. We had a lot of people on scene, um, most of our staff. And uh, then we got a flat tire on the wheeled litter. I remember that. And, uh, you know, several people in our group are great mountain bikers and they do this really quickly. It was incredible watching the pit crew go to work. And I was at the time I was working with Theo on, uh, you know, another round of pain meds and writing down vitals and that sort of thing. And we were rolling along and I remember being bouncy and every time it bounced, it killed my leg. I mean, it was painful. I know it sounds like pretty nice that I was getting rescued with a bunch of painkillers. But it was very painful. I remember my foot just throbbing. And at that point, I didn't want to even say anything because I just wanted to get out. I just wanted to get out. That took about maybe five minutes, uh, how quick that got changed. And then off we went. And uh, then we got another flat tire. <laughs> and, uh, oh, yeah, we were all just rolling our eyes because this was the kind of the rescue that just wouldn't end. You know, it was like we're we can get a little comfortable with our helicopter and how well things can go and we're like nope couldn't use that how can to we get, get rid of, of this girl can't, and uh, can't take her. and then we had two flat tires 
then we had somebody coming up with a new wheel. We're like, well, maybe we're putting holes in it. And it's all in the dark. And I remember gotta... at some point somebody just said, we have another flat tire or a flat tube or something. And somebody was saying, just go. We're just going at this point. That's right. Just go. So I would say maybe the last mile and a half we just did on the rim. Uh, we just went and we were out of tubes uh, and just kind of kept on rolling down. And, and when you're using the wheeled litter, there's a way to kind of do a little shock absorption on your own on the, the two people operating it by kind of lifting up a little bit down some of the bumps. But, you know, there was sort of some uh, knowing glances between anyone who was running the litter and me on the uh, like, you know, can we kind of titrate those pain meds to make some of the bumpiest sections go smoother for Fio, not necessarily for us. And yeah, it was a it was a long night, and um, and I didn't realize. I remember as I was on the litter with the mountain bike wheel, <laughs> I remembered asking, "When am I gonna go home? Like, are we almost there? Like, I I had no concept of time really." And then I started seeing the sun. It was getting light out, and then it's when it hit me that it had been forever, or what it seemed. Forever, I remembered somebody saying the ambulance is here. Yeah, it looks like we uh, we handed her off uh, to the ambulance around five in the morning. And I just lost it. I just started crying again because I was finally making it to the hospital. I was going to find out what was going on because I was in a lot of pain. Got to the ambulance and I asked the nurse to please write down all the names of the people that rescued me got to the hospital and AJ Wheeler was there and he grabbed my hand and he said we've been waiting for you we're ready and that was a great feeling then I remember all my clothes getting cut through the middle to find out and I remember things moving really fast x-ray CT scans everything I remember no water I remember begging the nurse who was looking after me. I remember they give you those little sponges on a popsicle stick for water. I'll be like, can I just have like 10 of those, please? (laughs) This is not enough. I was cleared out and I was wheeled over to Teton Orthopedics. I didn't get an MRI for some reason. I just had a CT scan and x-ray and it showed nothing broken. I had a tour MCL, and at that point, they thought I had a severe sprained ankle. And they put me in a boot and a brace, and my body was pretty swollen, so I, ha- I couldn't do any PT or anything for three weeks until at least the swelling would have gone down. I, ha- I remember having a purple foot, purple leg, my all of my right side was pretty purple and you know I started the healing process went to PT and did that for a while the first few weeks I needed help to shower I needed help getting dressed Um, I had a small wheelchair people would take me on little wheel rides around the block to get some sun and then I started PT and Uh, But I never really healed during those first six months because I had a broken foot all that time. Since I had met my deductible with this accident, 
I decided to get an MRI on my foot. I was still not being able to run, not being able to jump. My foot would get swollen from time to time. I had to be very specific with the shoes I was wearing. The MRI showed that I had a broken talus, a fractured talus. And I had been walking on it, trying to jump on it, went on a hike, a few hikes after that. But I always felt a lot of pain. And at that point, I felt just comfortable with it. And I thought that was just what it was going to be from now on. I'm just going to have a lot of pain. When it first happened, I was pretty embarrassed. Um, it was also on the front page of the paper. As a true South American, I have two first names. And at first, people didn't know who was Angela. People didn't know it was me. And I remember not wanting to talk about it that much. Now it's different because I've learned my lessons. I know that in the community, we take a lot of pride for having Jenny Lake Rangers, one of the best in the country. And we have Teton County Search and Rescue. And we're pretty lucky. And we take a lot of like pride on that. But I don't think we know the work, the risk management that goes on into those rescue operations. And sometimes we take that for granted. Going into the mountains to kind of see what's up, not really having a plan. It's not worth risking the rescuers' lives, putting those resources to exhaust and just coming with a really poor result afterwards. I, the biggest thing that I learned was to speak up and to ask questions. At that time, I was kind of, I was kind of dating Jason or my climbing partner. So I was believing, doing in the mountains, whatever I was kind of being told because I was really looking up to him and I wasn't really using my voice, my gut, my trust. And I put a lot of that in my partner. And I don't think that's the way that we go about ourselves in the mountains. You, I've learned that you go into the mountains and you assess the risk and you say, okay, can I manage this? If the situation were to go poorly, what can I do? What resources do I have? And what's my plan? And that's never what we looked at that day. I mean, we made a plan over a text message from the night before without an exact location where I was going. If I would have known with more detail, would I have said, yeah, I don't think so, maybe, because I would have thought about it. I would have probably held out. And that's something that I carry on now, dating a ski patroller, somebody who pushes my scheme boundaries somewhat. I put him through a lot of questions and I don't make it easy for him to take me out anymore. <laughs> and he likes to go on tours and we do, but he is very aware of my abilities and we come up with a time of return. Where are we going? What has the snow been doing? And I have really been learning a lot and I feel that I can make a decision in the backcountry that I feel comfortable with, for the most part, because you can never control everything in your environment. I've also learned saying no and not really caring what people are going to say. We live in a town where 
pushing our boundaries and getting extreme every day if just part of the norm. And I feel like most of the most of people that do that or including myself that have done that has been to fit in in some sort of category of being tough. It doesn't even matter because when you are in an injury of that kind or, or scared to death, when I fell and my climbing partner got to me, we were pretty embarrassed with each other and we had this intimate moment of saying, we screwed up, we made a mistake, we shouldn't... I mean, we knew that we could have done things differently in so many ways. I was lucky that I landed in a moat. I could have just kept on falling and maybe I wouldn't be here right now. And more than anything, I'm lucky and we are all lucky in this community that we have a team like Jenny Lake Rangers who are professionals and they know what they're doing and they will do whatever it takes to get you out. I mean, 10 people got together just to come get me. That's very humbling. I don't, I don't feel proud about that at all. I just feel humbled. I feel thankful. This podcast is produced by Backcountry Zero, a vision of the Teton County Search and Rescue Foundation to reduce fatalities and serious injuries in the Tetons. Find out more at backcountryzero.com.